Our passage this morning is found in Colossians. Uh, we'll be rounding out chapter 1 and starting in chapter 2. So it'll begin at verse 24 of chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2. Obviously, as you know, we are going through Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, for them and for us, a lot of this material is a reminder, but that's important. Uh, we need to be reminded. Beware of, of the thought process of, of, I already know that. If you, if you think that, you don't know it. We need the gospel fresh every day. And I was talking with, uh, I always do this with Doug, like, hey, I'm preaching this text. And we agreed there could be five or six sermons from this one passage. So I decided, no, I'm kidding. We're going to do one sermon from this passage. But there could be five. So there might be little things in it that you don't feel I cover fully. But there is definitely one strand throughout that we're going to, we're going to nail. And uh, just to kind of let you know where we've been, Paul is thankful for the Colossians. Uh, he says how he prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of God. And then in verse 15 of chapter 1, he spends five verses on really the preeminence of Christ, a beautiful theology of who Jesus is. And then the last time we looked at, he transitioned to who they were, how, how the Colossians had been alienated from Jesus, and yet he, or for, you know, at birth, and he had rescued them and brought them into the kingdom, and you and I as well. And now Paul transitions to what his role is in this process. So if we will read together, starting at verse 24 of chapter 1. Now I rejoice in the sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy and he power, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you've rescued us, that you loved your people and sent your Son to rescue us. And we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning to see the beauty of the treasures of Christ in a, in a fresh way. Amen. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's the TV show you should go out and start watching, but I grew up watching The Simpsons. And... I don't really remember a lot of specific episodes, but there's one particular moment in one particular episode that I will never forget. My brother and I were watching it together, and we cackled, and it's seared in my memory. And, and the irony is it's, you almost can tell it was an add-on. Like the animators decided to add this humor 
in the midst of drawing. So it's a, it's a Halloween episode, and here, it's very simple. They're da- you're downstairs. Something's happening in the living room. And then the camera pans to Bart Simpson upstairs. Okay? But for whatever reason, someone thought it would be a funny add-on to have in the middle between the ceiling and the floor, like, a ton of treasure. And it was like diamonds and gold, and, and it had nothing to do with anything. It never played out in any part of the story at all. And it, it just, it makes you just laugh. They're a poor middle, you know, they're a middle class family kind of struggling. And here in the midst of their living room, apparently, according to the animators, is this valuable treasure right there under their feet if you're upstairs or above their head if you're downstairs. And I just laughed. Is that not funny? Maybe you had to see the show. Maybe I should show a clip. It was funny to me. Because of the, the humor for me is, like, what would it be like to have an, an invaluable treasure in your midst just right there and you have no idea? I would say that for the church, for the Colossae, for us, oftentimes that's where we are with Christ. Oftentimes, though hidden in him are, are, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, often we live as if what we need is somewhere out there. We know he's with us, right? If you're a Christian, you know about him. But, but often we are searching somewhere else for the treasure that is Jesus's. And the goal this morning is that we would agree to make our life's work to seek him as our only treasure, to, to seek Jesus alone. So three points, mystery, maturity, and methodology of this treasure. The mystery, the maturity, and the methodology. So starting with the mystery, um, I want to say one thing about verse 24. I'm coming back to verse 24. Verse 24 is, it has a tiny challenge to it. Uh, it's hard to understand. If, if that was something that was, if it's not been on your mind, ignore what I just said. But if you were one of those people that thought, what's going on in that first verse? I'm coming back. Okay. Was that like the, Shane, was that wrong to do? They don't teach you to do that in sermon school. Right. The mystery. Paul says uh, there, there is this mystery. He's using this language because the Colossians loved mystery. They loved knowledge. They loved, uh, in that time, a lot of the pagan cultures had mystery religions. This kind of, what is out there? What's unknown? Um, we, we kind of want this too, right? We're, this is what makes infomercials so successful. You kind of, what if I'm missing something? This is what makes fad diets work. It's like, there could be something I don't know. I was on, uh, on Amazon, and, you know, they always suggest books. And there was a book that popped up called The Secret. I had never heard of this book. It's apparently been out for some time. But here's what it said. Here's what the little tagline said. For the first time in history... Leading scientists, authors, and philosophers will reveal the secret. A secret that will utterly, it's utterly transformed the lives of those who lived it. And now you will know the secret. And it can change your life forever. I mean, I was about to buy that thing. I was like, I don't know what the secret is, but, right? Um, You're all probably wondering, right? Well, my guess is you'd read the book and put it down, and then I'd go to your garage sale, and I'd find that book, right? We love secrets. In fact, you know, you can, you're in a crowded room. Your child's 48 feet across, and you and your, your spouse lean in to do this, and what does the child do? Like, they can tell there's a secret being told, right? 
You know, the second you get quiet, you're trying to be quiet. Everyone leans, what am I missing? What's the secret? I want to know, what, what are you saying? And it seems everyone gets it, right? We just, but think about it. What's happening in your soul? What am I missing? There, there's always something just below the surface that says, am I missing something? And Paul is tapping into that here. So look at verse 27. He says, to them, that is, to the saints, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's, what he's saying is, from the beginning of time, since the garden, there's been this plan of redemption, but the prophets and, and all those that knew about this plan of redemption had no idea when specifically and who and how the mystery would take place. But now Jesus has come. Jesus has come to earth. He's lived a perfect life, and he dies on the cross, and now the mystery is settled and we're going to talk more about how Paul came to understand that. But this mystery has been revealed. And Paul uses that language throughout this passage. And I want you to know it's, a, it's more than just a little bit of knowledge. It's not just, um, do you know about Jesus? There's a great story uh, in 1 Samuel where the Philistines capture the ark and they set it in a room with their god, Dagon. And the next morning they come, and their, their God, which is just a statue, like this, is bowed, prostrate, worshiping the Ark of the Covenant. Well, I say it's worshiping. That's the way it looked. So they set it back up. And, and, and what makes it kind of slightly humorous is it has that look of, like, you know, maybe the rival football team stealing the mascot. They just thought, we're just putting the mascot in the room. They didn't know they were putting Yahweh's presence in the room. The next day, Dagon is not only bowed over, but his head and his hands have been severed. There is power in God. And so we come to Jesus, and he's not just a good idea. He is your life. Listen to what happened. Next week we'll have this passage, but Paul, in a little bit, in verse 11 of chapter 2, says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying when you receive Christ, you are ontologically, it's a big word, I used to use it too much, then I quit using it, and now I'm going to use it this one time. Ont, thank you. Ontologically changed, that is you are in fact a new creation. It's not simply a belief system. Right? Look at Saul's conversion. Last week, Shane did a wonderful job telling us, and I'm going to refer back to it again, but here's Saul, who is the Apostle Paul. He's not just an unbeliever. He hates Jesus. He hates the church. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus reveals himself, and Paul is completely changed. He doesn't just reorient a few of his to-dos on his list. His entire life has been transformed by the fact that Jesus Christ is real. This morning, Price came forward and said, I am a Christian. And he confessed his story, his story to you. And he told us before the session, and he told his parents, part of our time with him is so fun is to hear mom and dad explain 
the changes that have gone in his life. And I would ask you this question, has, is this your story? Is, has the mystery become clear to you? Is Jesus your treasure? There's two answers to that question in this room. There's those of us, well, I'm, I, think, I think I'm a Christian, so I'll say there's some of you who might say, no, that's not, that's not true of me. And I would invite you even today to begin to pray that he would open your eyes to receive him as your treasure. But let me also say, many of us as Christians are transformed, and yet we don't treasure him. We don't find him to be the source of all of our life. And that's really where I want to take this discussion. Um, how does that happen? What, Paul's talking to Christians who believe. He's even said, I'm thankful that you've received the gospel. Right? And now he's transitioning to say, how do you transition? To, how do you treasure Jesus? And so point one, Jesus is the mystery. Point two is maturity. In verse uh, 28, Paul says, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's the reason, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity, that's, one of the, that's like a child's favorite word. You're so immature, right? Children, do you say that? Did you, as adults, as you were young, did you ever, you know, that's like a cut down. You're immature, I'm mature. Okay, what are we talking about? Everyone knows what mature means, but I want to kind of, what pastors do. We take things that make total sense and we make them complicated. Um, I would, I don't, I'm not, this is my own working definition. Maturity is when reality and your conduct begin to merge, right? Like, for example, a child runs through the house and tracks mud on the white carpet. It's not that they didn't realize that would happen. They understand the potential, but their conduct, for whatever reason, is immature. The adult goes, wait a minute, that'll make marks. The, the child, the immature knew it. The mature person is now conducting their lifestyle according to that reality, right? Does that make sense? Um, so maturing, when something become, goes from being mundane to making sense. Paul wants the church to grow in their maturity. Paul wants them to grow in, in, in the likeness of Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He's, here's his hope that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That he's saying, my prayer, my hope, what I'm eager to see as the church is that you begin to live out what you already believe. You grow by that and to do that. Um, as I was processing this and thinking about treasure, what I'm trying to do is think to myself, how, what does it look like to have treasure and yet not realize it? Have you ever thought of that? There, what, what stories out there exist where someone, you know, in their midst was a treasure they had no idea so I looked up the one, the, the kind of colloquial, everyone knows the story, the Declaration of Independence, right? There's like four or five of these stories floating around. This is a true story. A man named Michael Sparks was visiting a thrift store in Nashville, bought a couple of candle sticks, holders, things, pepper, shakers, and then he bought a knockoff Declaration of Independence. Now understand, this was not like a painting 
that someday he opened the back of, and wow, there it was. It was framed. This is the Declaration of Independence framed, but clearly it's a reproduction. He bought it for $2. Gets it home, begins to observe it, starts to think, this looks older than what a, you know, a recent printing of the Declaration would look like. It turns out there were 200 official copies made by John Quincy Adams had them made in 1820. And of those 200, 35 had been found intact and this was the 36th, worth 400 at the time, $477,000. So, wow. Like, think about that thrift store owner. <laughs> like, no, there's a Declaration of Independence right there. Yeah, that's it. But not realizing it's like one of like, the real copies. I know it's not the real copy. I understand. I know it's John Quincy Adams later. But do we do that? Where, where in our lives are we saying, I, I trust Jesus, but we're really not trusting him. We're treasuring other things. That's where we're immature. Where are you and I immature? I, I remember, um, boy, you have to be careful when you preach. Because I'll get like, no one emails you, they just get mad. Um, I was, I'm on a listserv of other pastors, and they were lamenting, of, these are all like ex-RUF guys. They were lamenting at how often people play hooky at church. That's the terminal. I've never heard of that thought. So the next time you skip church, we're going to say you're playing hooky. But I remembered like, yeah, I remember when I really started getting involved in church. I did youth work. I, I, I have a distinct memory, I don't know why, of sitting there, I think maybe with you, Emily, going, hey, let's go to Sonic and get a Route 44 like leave part of worship and, and drive to Sonic and get this drink and come back and, and maybe we'll bring it in or maybe we won't. And just, it felt, and we did. And it felt wonderful. Like I, that to me was like exciting. Okay, where am I going with that? Um, later I'm like, that was really immature. Now, not because I got a Route 44. Those are still yummy. Not because I wanted to drink in church. But for me, I can honestly tell you, this is my story. I'm not saying this is your story. I wanted to leave. I wanted to get out. There was something that felt enticing. Anyone else like that right now? Some of you are like, yeah, sounds pretty good. It's almost happy hour. My point isn't that you shouldn't get drinks, or you, but sometimes we're in the place where we need to be, but we just tend to go, I, don't, I want to do something different. Um, and, and our conduct doesn't match what we believe. Here are some examples, right? People who go into debt one day will often wake up and go, I knew I shouldn't have been doing that, but now I need to deal with it. Now I need to, I need to bring together my views on spending with my actions. How about cigarettes? If someone smokes, most of the time they'll tell you, I know this is bad for me. I'm, a full, I'm fully aware, but I'm going to keep doing it. So we have pockets of immaturity in the physical realm, but what about spiritually speaking? Do you recognize places for immaturity? And, and the primary areas that Paul li lists for us then aren't just church attendance or going to say small groups or being involved, but being knit together, verse 2 of chapter 2, in love. How mature are we in being knit together? Because that's painful. To be knit together with other human beings is very difficult. And so that leads us to our third point. How do you do it? How do we treasure Christ Embracing his mystery, longing for maturity, and then now the third and final point, how do we do it? The methodology, right? How do you do it? 
And I have really good news. You suffer. All the visitors are like, what have we got ourselves into? Seriously. I think one time we had some visitors and I was talking about death. Remember that? And I've never seen them again. Um, we have more visitors than that one time, but I happen to know that person, that couple. Anyway, the methodology of suffering. I'm going to now talk about verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Does that annoy you a little bit? Like, what? Like, why do you do that, Paul? Why are you happy to suffer? I want to explain what he's saying, and then I'll go back and unpack my question. He says, I am in my flesh filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Um, When Jesus died, the afflictions, and he rose again and ascended into heaven, that was a once and for all action. And if you are a Christian, that is what saves you. Nothing that Paul does saves you, okay? But Jesus also taught that there was a process by which the church um, would continue that message throughout the ages, right? And, and that's where there is suffering. So let me, let, me, um, let me back up and tell you, Jesus had to suffer for this reason. Adam sinned. I, I used to have a friend that said it's always in the garden. Like every theological answer starts in the garden. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Because Adam sinned, and there had to be a second person, a human, who never sinned to atone for that sin, right? Well, all the candidates were, ta- were gone. All of Adam's offspring had sin. There was only one candidate that could even be a possibility, and that was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who Paul's told us is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. So he is both God and man, and he always has been. Right? That wasn't just at the incarnation. And he, he was the only person of the Godhead who could say, I will go. And he came. But guess what happens when righteousness enters a room? Everyone gets upset, right? I, I was talking to a, a friend this week who said when they became a Christian and pulled back from some of their conduct, all their friends scattered. That's many of your stories. Jesus walks into the room and everyone freaks out, especially the religious people. So I'm going to remind you of John 13, where Jesus is, is in a room and everybody has their most religious clothing on. Like, these are the disciples. They've, and other accounts have just argued over who's the greatest. They're excited. They have no idea what's coming their way. Jesus is crucifixion. He knows. It's the Passover meal. They've all bathed and washed. But there's one problem. There's no one there to wash their feet. So what do you do in those moments? We all do it. Like, who's going to do this? What, what, who's, who's the least, right? Like, you know, who's the guy that no, never got a book written about them? Maybe he's the one that would get up and wash everyone's feet. Or maybe we just don't worry about it. I would propose that it's the sinless one. Why? Because the reason nobody wants to wash feet is everyone's trying to develop an identity based on their works, based on their efforts. But Jesus is the only one in the room, John tells us, who knows who he is. He knows where he came from, right? He knows his identity and he is secure and it propels him to suffer. In that instance, to wash feet, but later he says, I'm doing this as a 
as a picture of my incarnation, my life, my death, my resurrection. This is a sub picture, small picture of that reality. Okay, and then he says, do you know why I did this? Because I need you to wash one another's feet. Now, he doesn't actually mean that we should start feet washing. He means you're going to suffer. Why? Because if there are two people in a, next to each other, a third says, I have a need, the one with the least amount of sinfulness is going to respond. The one that's the most self-protected, concerned for self, is going to say, you got this? Okay, good luck. I'm going to go on. Right? So we, if we are in Christ, are going to see problems, we're going to see needs, and we're going to move in. That's the methodology. Are you encouraged? Paul was told this. Shane preached on this last week. Paul was described by Jesus. Jesus was telling uh, Ananias about, um, you know, the confusion. Why Paul? Or why Saul? He says, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering means you're going in and, and you're taking care of what God's given you. Now, if you ever talk to a parent, like you lifted a car off of a child, you know those magic moments that like, they don't say, I suffered. They say, I would have done nothing different. I, when I was young, I went, my, my parents were divorced, so my mom and a boyfriend at the time and I went to a fair, and they had a, a motor on display, and it was running. I touched the belt, and my finger went up, and it got lodged, and I began to panic, and this guy sticks his hand in and yanks my finger out. And I know it had to hurt. He suffered, right? But he didn't go, oh, I suffered. This is hard. It was all about, your finger didn't get cut off. How great is that? It's, I've been very thankful. It wasn't even my dad. Um, that's what it is. Suffering is what you do when you know you are in Christ or you know you have the capability of providing the protection which Christians have, and it's often spontaneous. So do you have spontaneous suffering? Uh, are there moments where you say, I'm going to go to this thing that you don't want to go to? Like, How many of you don't feel like going, attending certain things? Right? You, you get an email, I don't want to do that. That's suffering, I don't want to go to that but I should, so you write it down. Anyone? Have any of you ever had an experience where you just spontaneously said, I'm doing something? It happened this week. It happened this week. How many of you this week were at the parade? Anybody? Raise your hand. I know, Facebook people, I know. A lot of you said you were there. I saw you cheering. Here's the story. I was in... Tulsa, and I came back and found this out this happened, that there was a woman named Maida Lewis. She's 107. She uh, lives at the West Haven Nursing Home, right, on 12th and Western. And one of her caregivers said, what do you want for your birthday? And she said, well, I've never been in a parade with the top down, like in a convertible, and that would be amazing. I don't know how she said it. So somehow through Facebook, it was organized, and if you weren't there, I'm sure you saw it on Facebook. And if you're not on Facebook and this is the first time you're hearing about it, I'll try to do my best to tell you the story. So at noon, or like 12.15, on Thursday, she's in the convertible with some people. And like a huge 
group, 1,000 of people, 2,000, and a lot of people, showed up to cheer her on, right? And I remember later talking to some of those people, and they're like, yeah, and uh, I was at a place that had one of the signs left over. People made signs. Like, I hate making signs. And I bet the people who made that sign normally hate making signs. But somehow, it was fun that day. And there she goes down Main Street, and everyone's like, yeah, and cheering. And you look on Facebook, running up and giving her things, and she's trying to, you know, the flowers. It was beautiful. Um, I wish there was a reason I was telling that. (laughs) You know, there are certain things you have to preach on, and that's one of them. If you had asked any of those people a week before, hey, what are you doing Thursday? You want to make a sign? No. Not going to make a sign. Okay. Hey, you want to go hang out with me at Main Street? No, I'm busy. I've got a lot going on. My, my work's getting really, I've told my wife, you know, this and my husband, you know. But somehow, the fact that she was turning 107 captured people's hearts. And I remember asking a group of guys I was with, I said, what's the age, like what's the, give, what's the point? the break point. One guy said, well, I said, is it 80? Has she been 80? No, my dad's 80. Wouldn't do it. (laughs) I remember in the paper the next day, there was a lady turning 91 getting something. I'm like, 91? This lady's 107. What is the age where you decide, I don't care what's going on in my world. I'm driving to Main Street and waving at this woman to make her wish come true. It's 107, by the way. That's the answer. (laughs) What is it about this? Well, the spontaneous suffering, because you went to, you would never, I didn't suffer, I went to a parade. Yeah, but you left your job, and you left over here, and you made a sign. That's hard work. That cost you $4. You suffered in a way because you wanted to go celebrate something spontaneously that was transcendent. A 107-year-old. Like, we don't know what to do with that. Like, you are 107. What do you eat? That's what everyone does, right? Well, I eat Twinkies and what? We, we want to grab on to immortality, right? And Jesus is our immortality. And when he infects us, when he gets in our soul, when we begin to turn to him and not to all the outer things, we will spontaneously do crazy things for people. We will love people. We will care for them. We will forget about ourselves and move toward them. And I don't think Paul thinks he's suffering. Or later he says, I'm struggling. I think he's saying those words because that's what the Colossians think. And so he has to defend his ministry. But for him, it's joyful. And furthermore, at the end of verse 1, he says, I struggle with his energy. It's Jesus' energy that powerfully works within me. That's what drives Paul. And so the gospel message this morning is this. Jesus has pursued you, not because of anything you've done. He didn't go wash the disciples' feet because they were particularly good or even particularly bad. He washed their feet because they were his, his children. And if you are in Christ, you are, he, he loves you from the beginning of time. And he has washed your feet. And you have nothing to worry about. Zero. Your future is taken care of. No matter what comes your way, you know your eternal security. You can go to the parade. You can rejoice. 
you can do spontaneous acts of service to share that gospel message because of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the treasure that you've sent us in your Son is glorious. And Lord, so often we are caught up in the question of what must we do? And your answer is receive your mercy like the earth receives the rain. Right now, the earth is doing nothing. And yet it is receiving the nourishment of rain from you. And I pray that we, as your children, would understand that simply by being in your presence, we are receiving your mercy, by being your sons and daughters, by being adopted in in union with you, Christ, we simply receive, Lord, we receive the truth of the gospel. It comes through your scripture. Lord, we also know that we take the sacraments, that they are powerful tools you use to teach us how to mature. But ultimately, the treasure of Jesus is a gift we've already been given. And I pray we would seek your kingdom above all other kingdoms for your glory. Amen.